The world today is full of famous families. There's the Windsor family of England, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles and William, and I hear this spring they're going to add a princess named Kate. There's the Habsburgs of Europe and the Al-Sauds of Saudi Arabia. America, too, has its ruling families. The Roosevelts of New York and the Kennedys of Massachusetts, even the Bushes of Texas. And there are other famous families. The Skywalkers from the Star Wars planet Tatooine. The Mannings of the NFL, Archie, Peyton, and Eli, none of which, by the way, are going to be playing in the Super Bowl tonight. Then there's the Tuttles of Orange County, New York, and American Choppers, Paul and Paul Jr. And then, of course, the Goslins of Pennsylvania. Kate plus her eight. Please pray for Kate. She's on a motorcycle with one of the Tuttles. Kate has gone nuts. Then there's your family. And this morning, I want to talk to you about your family. This is what the latter half of chapter 4 in the book of Ruth is all about. It's about a famous family. In fact, how the book of Ruth ends explains why it was included in the Old Testament canon of Scripture and why it's become so significant to the Hebrews. The story of Ruth provides us background on the most famous family in Hebrew history. It reveals the roots of King David's family tree. In fact, David's family, the Davidic dynasty, is the most important family in the history of humanity. More so, it's the most important family in humanity's future. For God made promises to his servant David. He would be king over Israel. His descendants would sit on the throne and form a dynasty. A future heir will rule from David's loins. The son of David, we know him as Jesus, will become an eternal king who will establish an eternal kingdom. What an amazing treasure trove of promises given to David. Through David's family, God gives to all men a hope and a future. But it hearkens back to Ruth. Boaz and Ruth, they have a baby boy named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son, his youngest son, named David. And centuries later, many branches down that trunk of David's family tree is a son the angels call Jesus. And he fulfills all God's promises. The love story between Boaz and Ruth, a romance that began in the barley fields outside Bethlehem, ended up affecting a lot more than a lonely Moabite maiden and a kind landowner and a bitter mother-in-law. This romance of redemption has left an imprint on every person who has ever lived. The family of Boaz and Ruth left behind the ultimate legacy. If you've been with us the last four weeks, you know the story. A man named Elimelech fails to trust God. And he hauls his family to a pagan land. He moves to Moab to survive. But instead, Elimelech and his two sons die. His wife, Naomi, is left a grieving ball of bitterness. 
She returns to Bethlehem with just one blessing, Ruth, a loyal and loving daughter-in-law. This Ruth was quite a catch, and it didn't take long for her to catch the eye of a rich barley baron. God's providence steers Ruth into the field of Bethlehem's most eligible bachelor. And for Boaz, it was love at first sight. He blesses Ruth with provision and with privilege and with protection. And he's a relative, a potential redeemer. It's possible he can buy back the field that Naomi has lost and even provide Ruth another shot at marriage. But Boaz needs a nudge. And so at Naomi's direction, Ruth takes a risk. She she comes to him at the threshing floor. And she proposes that he propose to her. Boaz would love to marry Ruth. He loves her. But there's a closer relative who has first dibs. And like you and I and every other believer, Ruth has to learn to wait on God. And like every wife in this room this morning, she has to learn to trust her husband to work it out. At first, this other relative is eager to buy the land until he reads the fine print to purchase the land. He has to also take the lady. He doesn't want to wed Ruth. And thus he passes his sandal of ownership to Boaz, who jumps feet first. He's delighted to marry Ruth. Hey, Boaz is no longer ruthless. (laughs) And that's where we left off last week. Boaz is passing out wedding announcements to the townspeople. Bethlehem is invited to the nuptials. And in verse 11, the town leaders toast the engaged couple. But notice the blessing that they offer. And all the people who were at the gate, verse 11, and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathra and be famous in Bethlehem. Now, now this is not like the well wishes that we normally hear at weddings. Most of the toasts that I've heard at the wedding reception are along these lines. May you grow old and rich together. May you make each other happy. May you find peace in your heart and home. May God fulfill the desire of your heart. Today, we don't even hear someone ask God to bless the couple with a few kids or a grandkid or two. It's all about the newlywed's happiness. Now, I'm sure the townspeople who blessed Boaz and Ruth were not against this couple's happiness. But their sights for them were set much higher. Ephrathra was the region in which they lived. Bethlehem was their hometown. Their friends and family wished for them regional influence, citywide fame. They hoped Boaz and Ruth make a name for themselves. Of the hundreds of weddings I've attended, I've never heard anyone toast the bride and groom in this way. God, make their last name great. Notice the townspeople hope that Ruth will be like Rachel and Leah. Leah and Rachel were sisters married to the same man, Jacob. Along with their two maids, they filled his tents with kids. Polygamy was later outlawed by God, 
But at the time, it was customary. Problematic, but customary. These sisters accounted for 12 sons plus. For each of these 12 sons had sons of their own. And each of those families grew into 12 tribes of multiple nuclear families. And together, all 12 tribes became one nation that took their father's name, Israel. Rachel and Leah didn't just birth kids. They built a house, a nation. Today, 4,000 years later, when you hear the phrase, house of Israel, you don't think of the split level down the street with the two crazy sisters and the bunch of screaming kids. House of Israel isn't just the bus stop that took 15 minutes to load up. This house isn't a single family domicile. The name House of Israel spoke of a blessed and holy people group. These were the recipients of God's revelation. These were chosen from all nations to be God's light in the world. The House of Israel was an island of orthodoxy in a sea of paganism. This house was a nation with a godly past and a glorious future. In the minds of the elders who blessed Boaz, Rachel and Leah were nation builders. And that's what they hoped for Ruth. Now here's my point. After Boaz and Ruth get married, the writer doesn't say, and they lived happily ever after. That would be too glib. That would be trivial compared to what's at stake. Their marriage wasn't just about Boaz and Ruth being happy. The meaning of marriage is never only about one couple's happiness. All marriages are bigger than the personal good times of the man and the woman. Marriage is about building a house and leaving a legacy. In verse 12, the elders have another strange wish for Boaz. May your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Now this is so bizarre. (laughs) Now imagine you're at a rehearsal dinner. You've just watched the cute, sentimental video of the couple growing up through the years. You know what I'm talking about? The baby pictures and then the embarrassing, here I am in the bathtub photo that every mom has to throw in. And then the nice engagement photos. And then the best man stands up and he clinks his glass. And he says to the wedding party, May your house be filled with shame and death and dysfunction and sexual perversion and prostitution and bitterness and revenge. Talk about throwing a damper on the festivities. Yet that's the storyline that the elders reference. The house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now as Rachel and Leah birthed the house of Israel, Tamar founded the house of Perez, which was part of the house of Israel. Perez was a descendant of the tribe of Judah, the tribe that became the royal ancestry through which Messiah would be born. So in the end, the house of Perez accomplished much. The house of Perez sired the Messiah. 
We read in the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew 1, Judah begot Perez, by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, and he goes all the way down to Judah. In the end, they accomplished much. But understand the sordid beginnings of the house of Perez. In Genesis chapter 38, Judah has a son named Ur. <laughs> hey, if you're parents and you want to name your kid a biblical name, try something other than Ur. Hey, Ur. Come here, Ur. It's spelled E-R. But E-R didn't make it to the E-R in time. And so he died. Leaving his wife, Tamar, a widow. Childless. Judah's son, Onan, was the next son in line. You remember the law of the relative redeemer? We've been talking about that throughout Ruth. But he refused to accept his obligation. And Tamar was left childless. She grew bitter. She blamed her father-in-law for Onan's resistance. And Tamar sought revenge. She set a trap for her father-in-law. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. And she lured the old man into his tent. She tricked her father-in-law into siring her a son. And guess what she named him? Perez. What a shameful story. So why did the Bethlehem elders stand up and bless Boaz and Ruth by saying, May your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. If I was Boaz, I would have stood up and said, God forbid. But here's where we see families differently than God sees families. When God evaluates a family, he looks past the rough starts and the embarrassing incidents and the shameful moments. And he judges the overarching course of that family. God sees our destiny, not our detours. And the house of Perez had a glorious destiny. It gave birth to the Messiah. You know, your family is also full of both destiny and detours. Every family has glorious moments when God is praised and the family is honored. But there are other times when a relative acts in a sinful or in a shameful or in a stupid manner. And you're ashamed to be associated with that same family. You see, the key to enduring the detours is to keep your eye on the destiny. Here's one reason God created families. To live in a family, any family, it takes grace Grace and more grace. For in a family, you can't dodge the dirt bag. I mean, he shows up at all the reunions. I mean, he's there every Christmas. You have to keep dealing with flawed, sinful family members. And it forces you to forgive and to show mercy and to not judge and to look past a brother or sister's sin. You have to be willing to give people a new start. And you pray the people in your family will show the same mercy toward you. Being a part of a family teaches you to love. In a family, you can't control people. They do as they please, and it reflects back on you. That means that in a family, you are bound to be embarrassed at times. And you end up having to help people out of trouble. And you love people even when they don't deserve to be loved. You see, throughout this story, you might have been puzzled. 
at Boaz's acceptance of this Moabite maiden, Ruth. I mean, Boaz was a devout Jew. He loved God. He obeyed God's law. Why is Boaz getting mixed up with a former blasphemer from Moab? I mean, it wasn't too long ago that Ruth was offering a sacrifice before the idol Chemosh, a vile idol. She had been previously married. I mean, Boaz could have had any of Bethlehem's young virgins. I'm sure he was impressed with Ruth's conversion and character, but there had to be more to his fascination. And there was. For let me read to you Boaz's entry in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. What? Who was Boaz's mom? Rahab the harlot. This was the prostitute of Jericho who took in the Hebrews Joshua sent to spy out the land. Rahab believed God would triumph. She cast her lot in with Israel. And after the conquest, Joshua showed mercy and brought her into God's family. You see, Boaz was willing to overlook Ruth's sordid past since he had a sordid past of his own. His mom was a madam. And yet God showed mercy on him. How could he not be gracious toward Ruth? You see, this is what you learn being a part of a family. Every family is checkered by failure, but it presses on by faith. This is what the elders of Bethlehem are saying. Despite Onan's disobedience and Tamar's spite and Judah's immorality, may the family of Boaz and Ruth be like the house of Perez, a family that prevailed. It accomplished God's purpose. It birthed David and the Messiah. He's saying to Boaz, may your house also be a family that prevails. You see, here's today's big idea. When we think of family, 99% of the time our eyes are on me and my happiness. Or us and our happiness. Or now and today's happiness. But me and us and today is not all there is to a family. A family is about long-term impact. A family leaves a long wake behind the ship. A family is about legacy. You see, families aren't about days. You don't measure families in days. Wedding days or birthdays or even lifespans. For a family links together a string of births and deaths. It implants in a people a long and lively legacy. A family links together generations. Old and young stand side by side in a family. A family is something bigger than any one person. Some limbs on the family tree aren't as strong or as straight as others. That's why you can't judge a family by a single generation. A family is about making a mark on history and helping to shape our collective future. It's interesting to me that from the beginning, Boaz and Ruth were all about family. They never had the opportunity for it to be just about them. They started out their marriage as a family. Notice what happens on the honeymoon. I mean, this doesn't take long. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. The old boy Boaz, he comes out firing, man. 
he hits the bullseye on the first shot. She walks the aisle and births the child as close together as was legal. You know, if you're married, if you're a married man, how many married men men here? Good. If you're a married man, there are two times in your life when your wife will look most beautiful. First is the day of your wedding. I've seen plenty of ugly ladies, but I've never seen an ugly bride. I don't know how that works. But every bride I've ever seen has been beautiful. And they certainly work at it. I mean, lots of effort goes into a bride's dress and her hair and her makeup and her updo and her complexion. And it's costly. Depending on her starting point, beauty can set you back a pretty penny. (laughs) And wedding day looks are time-consuming. A bride spends hours on her wedding day sprucing up her appearance, man. The bubble bath lasts longer than the ceremony. But there's another day when your wife will look most beautiful. It's the day she births your baby. Now for her, it's a different experience. But from a husband's perspective, she is every bit as gorgeous as on your wedding day. After 20 or so hours of labor, a woman is greasy. And she's slimy. And she's smelly by this point. Her head looks like a wet mop. A hospital gown sure isn't a wedding dress, although it costs about the same. But when that doctor yanks your kid out of the birth canal and plops him or her up on your wife's tummy, I mean, this new mom is suddenly the most attractive female you have ever laid eyes on. Am I right, guys? A woman is never more beautiful than when she walks the aisle and births the child. And for Boaz, just nine months, the minimal amount of time separated those two big days. In other words, from the start, marriage for Boaz was a combo deal. It was never just about him and his sweetheart spending time together and getting to know each other and traveling and enjoying their freedom. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong for newlyweds to wait a little while to have kids. To the contrary, that can be wise. But for Boaz, marriage meant building a family. It meant building a family from the very beginning. On my wedding day, and for some time thereafter, kids were not a goal. For me, kids were just not a goal. But my wife had her priorities in order from day one. Kathy got married not for me, not just for me, or because she loved me. She wanted to have a family. Kathy wanted to raise kids, plural. When Zach was born, it was time to have another. Natalie came 16 months later. By this point, kids are coming pretty regular. You know, this is kind of what we do now. A third showed up, then a fourth shows up. And I was okay, but I really started wanting a number. I kind of needed a number here. And and I'm thinking, what's our quota here, Kath? 
And so I scheduled a conference with my wife. And I'll never forget that conversation. Remember, at this stage, all four of my kids were under eight. And I had my hands full, man. The older two were in Christian school, so I was trying to figure out how to pay tuition. I was the only guy I knew who was looking forward to college so I could pay less tuition. I mean, I was overwhelmed. And so we have this conversation, and Kath starts out talking about how much fun we're going to have when the kids are all grown and we're married, and with four kids, we're bound to have a bunch of grandkids. And we're going to be able to play with those grandkids. Sandy, it's going to be so wonderful. We're going to have big shindigs at our house. Every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, the place is going to be here. Kids are going to be all over the place. And she's thinking like this, and Zach is just eight. <laughs> I never forgot that conversation. She had a bigger view of family Then I did. It came up again when we bought our current house. We're walking through this house together. I'm looking for leaks in the roof and stains on the carpet and cracks in the floor. We hadn't bought it yet. And she's talking about the big bedrooms. Oh, we can put a double bed in here and also build some bunk beds. It's big enough for that so that Natalie and her family can come up and stay with us. And we can do the same in the other room for another set of kids and grandkids. Kathy had this vision for family. And again, at this point in our lives, none of our kids are even married. I'm thinking about where we can put the ping pong table. And Kathy is planning where the grandkids are going to sleep. She thought generationally. But this is how more Christians need to think. If all a couple wants out of marriage is happiness, they'll be disappointed. Because happiness comes and goes. But if you are building a house, raising kids and loving others, doing something bigger than just you and your honey, you'll touch future generations. You'll pass down a legacy and leave this world a better place. You'll be happy, all right, but you'll be more than happy. You'll be fulfilled. Do you have spiritual goals bigger than you? I hope so. Remember, the family you came from is not as important as the family you're going to shape. Verse 14 says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. They're so concerned about Boaz having a great name. Again, this is what family's all about. It's about making a name for yourself. This is how you should see your family. Does your family have a good reputation? Does your last name stand for something good and godly? I've always taught my kids that being an Adams is important. When Nick got married, I I got a bunch of hats, and it all said Adams Golf on the front of them. And we went to play golf that day. I passed hats out to all of all of the guys in the family, because I wanted them to know. We're Adamses. That's important. That means something. Our name means something. My dad has integrity. His dad had integrity. I've tried to walk with integrity. Being an Adams means living your life with integrity. I've tried to instill in my kids that if you're an Adams, you act a certain way, and you talk a certain way, and you treat people a certain way. And if you bring shame, 
you bring it not only on yourself, but to the name that we all bear. Our common name has always been a big deal in our family. Future World at Epcot Center in Orlando, it has an entrance that's cluttered with 19 granite slabs. It started as a gimmick used by Disney 10 years ago. It was called Leave a Legacy. It was just a money-raising scam. For 38 bucks, you could have a square-inch photo of your family etched into one of these giant granite slabs. I mean, Disney made a killing. They sold like 550,000 pictures. But today, Disney wants to get rid of those slabs. Why? Because they're like tombstones. And relics of the past aren't really appropriate for an entrance into future world. Let this be a lesson for us. The only etching that a person can take into the future is what is imprinted on another person's heart. It's been said an inheritance is leaving something for others. But a legacy is when you leave something in others. Leaving a legacy means carving, etching into the heart of your family a set of values and beliefs. I think this is what God had in mind when He created families. He wants us all to participate in a spiritual legacy of faith. Call them family values. And when your values are biblical and true, you need You want them and need for them to be preserved. See, I want to send my values into the future, but I'm going to die. So how can I affect the future if I'm not going to be there myself? The answer is a family. I can send a piece of my heart on a head. I can make my mark on the future by building a family that will live on without me, yet shaped by my influence. This is why the older you get, the more important your family becomes. As you start staring death in the face, you realize that the only earthly immortality is through your family. And you want to impart wisdom and explain beliefs and share values and convey to your kids what matters most. You know, people today who follow population population trends are alarmed. Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists are multiplying like rabbits. Population in the East and Middle Eastern countries is on the rise, whereas Western nations aren't even keeping up with our replacement rates. Western civilization is becoming extinct, and I think there's a cause. As Western nations have shed their Christian heritage, it has diminished the sacredness of marriage and family. We've lost sight of the godly goal of building a house and passing on a legacy. You see, in the West, life has stalled out on us. We we no longer have a concern or a vision for future generations. If you doubt me, just look at our inability to trim the nation's deficit. We'd rather leave our kids in hock than do without our benefits. To modern couples, marriage means fun and romance, and togetherness, and sex, and friendship, and when they don't get their way, they're ready to quit. Marriage should also be about building a house and leaving a legacy. Notice in verse 15, Naomi's friends, they continue speaking. May he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. 
For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. When Naomi returned to Bethlehem, she called herself Mara, or bitter. But now her new family, her her provider Boaz, and her faithful daughter-in-law Ruth, better now than seven sons, and now her grandson. This has all put fresh wind back in her sails. She's been rejuvenated. And I'm told that this is the way life works. You see, as a parent, you pour your life into your kids. Then they grow up and they leave you. And it's supposed to create a satisfied feeling, like a job well done. For me, it's the pits. I realize I've spent 30 years working myself into irrelevance. But just about the time you get really depressed about this, because you no longer need it, what happens? A grandkid pops up. And it changes your entire outlook. Naomi's friends refer to her grandson as a restorer of life and a nourisher of old age. All of life becomes new again when you see it through the eyes of a child. And as Naomi cradles this little baby, she goes from bitter to blessed. Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom, became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's strange to have the neighbors come over and name your kid. That's what happens here. Naomi's friends show up and name her grandson Obed, which means servant. Remember, this whole story is a spiritual allegory. Ruth is a Gentile bride redeemed by the Lord of the harvest. A relative purchases the land because he loves the lady who lost it. They both go back to him. This story is really about Jesus because this is what Jesus has done for us. He became a man, a relative who could redeem our world that we lost to Satan. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. He paid the steep price of redemption. But he did it not because he needs another world. He did it because he loves you. And he loves me. And he wants us, our lives and our hearts, to belong to him again. And there's one more key to unlocking this allegory. Notice the byproduct, the offspring, the fruit and the fallout of Boaz's union with Ruth is a kid named servant. This is what happens inside us when Jesus saves. Suddenly, you have these strong desires To love and serve Jesus, you have new wants. You start to reason, Lord, after all that you've given me, what can I give to you? Tonight, the NFL plays at Super Bowl. Go pack. Ooh. But in the year 2000, the St. Louis Rams won the big game. The Rams were led by MVP quarterback Kurt Warner. And in the, in the months after the game, Kurt and Brenda and their seven kids came up with a new family tradition. Kurt had a little extra money. You win the Super Bowl, that happens. They came up with a new tradition. They called it the restaurant game. Today, every time the Warners go out to eat, they look around the restaurant and they pick out a family 
And they tell the waitress that they would like to anonymously pay for that family's meal. You see, the Warners love Jesus. They credit Him with their success. And Kurt is trying to teach his kids the joy of giving. He wants to leave a legacy. You see, this is what happens when you realize how extravagantly God has given to us His Son, His forgiveness, His love, His blessing. And the results are always predictable. It's a heart that wants to give back to God and give to others. That's leaving a legacy. Well, the book of Ruth closes with a genealogy. It tracks the ancestry of King David. Verse 18 reads, Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begat Hezron. Hezron begat Ram. And Ram begat Aminadab. Aminadab begat Nashon. And Nashon begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz. And Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Ruth. Uh, I mean, Jesse. And Jesse begot David. Now, I love the quirky fact that this book ends with a genealogy. For here's what a genealogy means every one of these names was a real person who made mistakes in their life, they had high points, they had low points. They caused both honor and shame to their families at different times. But despite what the individual did, the family rolled on. People kept having kids and overlooking blunders and loving and forgiving. They were building a family, not just individual lives. They were constructing a spiritual house. And God saw fit to join that house. Jesus was birthed into their family. And if you choose to build a house for God, Jesus will join your building. He'll join your family. If you'll look past your own pleasure and convenience and gaze ahead a lifespan or two, and think of more than just your welfare and your fun, and commit yourself to making your world a better place even after you've gone, then God will honor you. Your name will become famous. And your God will be pleased. Leave a godly legacy etched into the hearts of your kids, and your grandkids, and even your great-grandkids. And you'll enjoy blessings that this world will never know. Father, thank you for your word today. I pray that it's an encouragement to us all. Lord, we're not just trying to get along with our spouse. We're not just feeding kids. No, we're doing much more than that. We're, we're building a house. And we're leaving a legacy. And I pray, Lord, that we would recommit ourselves today to that task. And Lord, I'm thankful that you've promised to join us in that task. As we build a house, Lord, you you want to be a part of that building. You, You want to join our family and lead our family. And so, Lord, we trust you and we look to you today to lead us and to guide us. Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the lives and the families represented here today. We ask for your blessing.
In Jesus' name and for His sake, amen.